The following podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or opinion. However, we do have one free bit of legal advice for you, which is... Call a lawyer. Seriously, call a lawyer. If you need legal advice, call an actual lawyer and talk to them. It's that straightforward. Or at the very least, less boring. I'm Karis Williams. I'm Tierney Green. And today... We're in the same room! Really exciting, guys, I know. Actually, in the same city even would be exciting for us. That's true. (laughs) Since Tierney ran off to the north. (laughs) Since Karis refused to run off to the north with me. Yeah, well. So we have some um, behind the podcast. Let's open the curtain slightly. Do we? Yeah, some behind the podcast things to talk about. Uh, But first, corrections. These are actually from the first episode. I said I would look up how you pronounce that word, and I did, and then I forgot to include it in the previous episode. It's not delict, it's either delict or delict. Mm. That's D-E-L-I-C-T. And remind us all again what that means, Tierney. It's taught and delict, which is a branch of law. The other thing, and this is a really big thing. So, Mrs. Donoghue, the lady with the snail, um, she did win in the Supreme Court. However, when the case was booted back to lower courts, she still didn't win because she couldn't prove that there was a snail. So she didn't actually win anything from um, Mr. Stevenson, even though even though she won in the Supreme Court. So it's like legally important, but she didn't get anything out of it. And I looked and I looked at all the resources that I had got and none of them had mentioned that. It was when I mentioned it to my tort law professor. She just told me. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> she can probably bring that up. Um, you guys will remember this is from the very first podcast with the snail and ginger bear. Yes. So, yes, yeah, she didn't get anything out of out of Mr. Stevenson at the very least. Although she's sort of um, relatively important in terms of legal history. Yeah, and also we've mentioned her on our world-renowned podcast. So, you know, the whole thing's been worth it for her in numerous ways. Yeah, the most popular co- podcast that is called Case Dismissed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's also the most popular podcast I do. And me. It's yeah. our number one podcast of one. So the behind the podcast moments. We actually recorded an episode three. And then what happened, Tierney, to that episode three? Let me tell you, Karis. Um... I went to, I have two different Word documents. I've got one that I use that's got the case in it and then the one that's got all the laws in so I can keep track of what I'm talking about. And I went to click on the law one so that we could start the ending segment. And I realised that although I had clicked record, it had recorded silence because for some reason it had defaulted to something that wasn't even a microphone. So I had 17 minutes of complete silence and we got Karis' reactions. But that was it. For... For those people who obviously won't know Tierney, I don't think we've ever had 17 minutes of silence from her. <laughs> ever. So this was a highly unusual situation. Hashtag called out. <laughs> but you also are not sure if you even still have your files. No, because my computer crashed in an unrelated essay 
related incident a few weeks ago. We've all been there. So, um... So, so we're going to re-record that, guys. But we are not doing it today. We're going to leave that case a little bit longer so that it will be more fun when we actually get to it. The other thing that we wanted to, behind the podcast, would be the title sequence. We tried to get the song I Fought the Law by The Crickets. So the first thing that we did was we wrote to Sonny Curtis because this is the guy who wrote the song. And the only reason that we are bringing this up at all on the podcast is he is the nicest guy. Lovely. He sent us this really lovely email. I think the day after we sent it, he, sent, he emailed us back and said, I would love to give you permission. That sounds really nice, but I, I don't own the permission, so I, I can't. So we asked Sony. They didn't say no. They just wanted slightly more money than the naught pounds we wanted to spend. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we knew we would have to pay. We were just hoping it would be something we could afford. And it well, you know... Wasn't. 50p, we, we could have probably just about managed. I think I might have, I might have stretched to an entire pound. Oh. I mean, really, I was hoping for some sort of reciprocal deal where it's like, if we do, ever did make money, then we would give them like a cut of advertising. But they were kind of like, it doesn't really work like that, which is understandable, but you don't get what you don't ask for. So sorry, guys, we tried, but main takeaway message from this is that Sonny is a lovely man. Yeah, um, I'm going to crown him the nicest guy ever. I mean, that's... Maybe a bit extra. That's maybe a bit extra. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna crown him. I don't, I also don't know if we have that power. I think you can. we can crown him the nicest guy on this podcast. That is totally true. And he's up against some delightful people, as we all Miss, know. Mr. Stevenson. Oh, uh, Mr. Stevenson. James Lee Richards. I'm suddenly having a moment. Where is that, is that his name? Jonathan Lee Richards. Jonathan, which one was he? He was the guy who's filed the most lawsuits. Ah, yeah. So, you know, hot competition for Sonny, but so far he's the forerunner. But I suppose that could all change, Tina. I don't know what case we're discussing today. <laughs> anyway. So, Karis, I'm sure that you've, you've been there. Has anyone ever said anything, like, slightly mean to you? Or, like, maybe you received feedback on work that you did and the feedback, you know, wasn't that great. Like, you'd worked really hard, but the feedback was just mean. Yeah, I get that all the time from you, Tierney, at the end of every podcast. <laughs> emails pointing out all the mistakes I've made, cutting out all my jokes. I want to parents, guys. I mean, like, that, that thing with your voice, you know, when you talk, <laughs> can you not? <laughs> um, yes, yeah. in all seriousness, I do know what you mean. When you've worked hard on something and then it so- just gets slightly kind of... Shut up. Shut up by someone yes. else. Well, remember That's that. two piece. swear words so far this, this episode. It is. I mean, you said fucking hell in the previous one, so I thought, if we're going to go down this road, we might as well do it thoroughly. That's three now. Yeah. Three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, technically, I'm quoting you, but anyway. So let's remember the feeling of, of being criticised, and it doesn't feel nice. No one likes it. So I have been doing research on cases for future episodes, and I have discovered that there are some really great cases that are coming out of Australia. But like in our second episode, there is also a case that always comes up when you look up Australian sort of legal cases in general that's got quite a lot of misinformation that I want to quickly like run down before we get to our main case. So Karis, have you heard about the case involving actress Rebel Wilson? Is this... She's slewing people for... Slewing, slewing people for slander. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> We're strong. I've seen headlines, <laughs> but I don't know any of the details. Yes. So it's it's not um, slander would be in under UK law. Slander is verbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's libel when it's written. She's actually suing for defamation. Okay. In fact, she's already sued, but we'll get into that. Um, it, I'm not going to go into anywhere near as much detail as I did with Stella Liebeck, and I think I might be mispronouncing that. I think it might be Stella Liebeck. 
Is it L-I-E? Yes. I think it's Liebeck then. Then I horrendously butchered that and I'm very sorry. But yeah, this, this all, the Rebel Wilson case, all the things I, I read about it also irritated me. and I wanted to just quickly run it down because again, I'm just really pissed off about it. So last year, meaning 2017, because it's 2018 now, um, actress Rebel Wilson, who actually has a law degree, if anyone's interested in that Did kind not of thing. Um, she won a record payout in Australia against publishing group Bauer Media. She was awarded 4.5 million Australian dollars. And they're, obviously they're appealing that amount. There's no way that's that we're not going to appeal that. And I was looking for some resources about the case today. I came across several articles about her case and some of them started to give her the Stella Liebeck treatment and this shall not pass on this podcast that I'm sure they will all read because you read podcasts. Yeah. They will all listen to and they will weep and they will feel very dreadful for what they have done and sit in a corner and just think about it. So why did she sue for defamation? Do you know anything at all about this case? Or is it just that there was a case? I vaguely remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the newspaper or magazine wrote an article in which they said she'd lied a lot about her background. That was the general gist I have. I mean, kind of, yeah. Um, There's other bits to it. Um, Basically, a magazine which I can't remember the name of and quite frankly don't care all that much about, uh, but it is owned by Bauer Media. They were printing stories, plural, about her, which painted her in a negative light. But a few of the articles I came across, which were about this case, that she had won, by the way, basically said, oh yeah, she said she was a bogan, but she actually went to these fancy, expensive private schools, but in court, her mum said that she had to sleep on the floor of their house, so she won. And it was that tone, where it was literally, so bogan, I can see the face. No, I've heard, I've heard. Ah, do, uh, do tell. Would be the now uh, somewhat... Defunct. Defunct and I think problematic term in the UK would be chav. White trash. And in the States would be white trash. Yes. It's not a direct quote, obviously, to what I just said. In the flawless Australian accent. I mean... I apologise to Australia. I'm just yeah. going to go through all the countries and apologise. the one Australian listener we have to <laughs> they've gone now. Hey, I might, I might be able to get Louise to do it. She won't mind. So yeah, they, they were implying that basically it's not offensive to say that someone was privileged when they're claiming that they weren't. Well, firstly, yeah, in court, they produced evidence to demonstrate that her family were not rich. So implying that she was rich is, is a lie. <laughs> well, implying is not necessarily a lie, but if, if there's only really one conclusion one can draw from something that someone said, then you have basically lied. More importantly, that is not the only thing they printed. That's what all these other articles fixated on, but that's not the only thing that got printed. They claimed that she was a serial liar, lying about all sorts of things from her age to her legal name. And in court, the judgment said that they'd said she'd fabricated almost every aspect of her life. I wanted to bring it up because some of the articles I was reading were just, they were misrepresenting the facts and it just just really pissed me off, quite frankly. She sued because not only did she miss out on some roles, but she was actually dropped from other films just because of this controversy. And I must assume that the evidence for that was presented in court because in UK law, that kind of thing would be deemed too remote unless you can prove that you didn't get those roles explicitly for that reason. Right. Like if she'd received an email saying, we didn't give you this role and it's because we've heard no, 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 then that would be proof. But if you just assume that, it, it might be true. Okay. But if you it's can't... very difficult to prove. Yes. Um, if you can't prove it, then you... That's it. Uh, most of the damages awarded were due to the roles that she didn't get. Because, of course, she will be paid a very lo- large amount of money. The actual defamation payout was um, 650000 Australian dollars. 
Unlike the McDonald's case, the reason that she got this much money was, according to the judge, Justice John Dixon, unless substantial damages are awarded, there is a real risk that the public will not be convinced of the seriousness of the defamation, but will rather wrongly conclude that the articles were trivial or not that serious. He also added that Bauer Media failed to adequately investigate the allegations, even though they came from a source who the editor felt, and I quote, had an axe to grind. So, in short, a magazine prints stories which it can't prove are true, gets done for it, then other publications perpetuate said stories and imply with their tone and selectively choosing what to report that she actually is a liar. So, in other words, Rebel Wilson vindicated. Yes, and yet people are talking like she hasn't been when she has, quite soundly, especially if the judge feels the need to say that. Stella Liebeck, Rebel Wilson. Exactly. The thing about the age as well, it was so weird. It was like they'd got her age wrong in an article and she said, I chose not to correct it because probably because she didn't care that much. And then they said that was her lying about it because someone failed to fact check and then everyone else used that article as the source. Um, That's not her fault that someone else is, you know, incompetent journalist. Ouch! She says... Tierney's on the wolf. Yeah. <laughs> we obviously never get anything wrong at Case Dismissed, guys. I feel that's important to say right now. <laughs> We're definitely not going to get... All our podcasts page. are heavily fact-checked. after the fact where I then say so it turns out (laughs) so what is defamation Cass there will be a test on this later oh god see what I mean about the mean feedback guys (laughs) I bought you gold stars Cass (laughs) is that a question I'm meant to be answering yeah okay okay defamation is well to defame is to say negative things about someone and their character that are not true yeah yay basically in uk law it is saying or writing lies about a person or organization which are proved to be false so someone can say it's a lie key detail you can't defame someone with the truth yes okay you don't have to like it but you know so if i said sometimes tyranny is late things that is not a defamation. It's just an uncomfortable truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think that would be the difference, isn't it? It's the uncomfortable truth. Yes. You might not like it, but if you did do it, well, it sucks to be you. But It's a good name for a podcast. What? The Uncomfortable Truth. Isn't that the name of that Al Gore film? Oh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone beat you About to it. Climate change. <laughs> yeah. is that, oh, is that an Inconvenient Truth? Inconvenient, inconvenient truth. truth. Uncomfortable Truth. See, there, there's little levels of truthness. Ah. We're in the post-truth era, guys. Truth can be whatever we want it to be. <laughs> but not in UK law. So, defamation is the overarching branch of law which covers both libel and slander. Libel being defamation when it's printed or lasting slander being spoken aloud. It has to be specific to a person, as in yelling moron across a room doesn't specify which particular moron to whom you are referring. Okay. And it also has to cause harm to their reputation. I can't really think. I mean, I think certain things that are like opinion and protected to a certain extent. Like, you could have printed articles about Rebel Wilson and if you thought she wasn't said, particularly good... I don't good. like her. Yeah, I said, I don't think she's a particularly good actress or whatever, which, I mean... Because how do you prove that's false, I suppose? Yeah, so that is the kind of thing that is inherently your opinion. Okay. But we'll get on to that, because yeah. that's not unrelated to what I'm going to talk about. So let's talk about our case this week, our main case. It is the 30th of September, 2003. Mm-hmm. In Sydney, Australia, an edition of the Sydney Morning Herald is published, which contains, I'm sure, many articles about many topics. They also publish opinion pieces and reviews. So I think it's like a local paper. One such review is for a brand new restaurant in King Street Wharf, 
I'm talking like that means anything to me, but suffice it to say, it seems to have views over the harbour. <laughs> Lovely. Know. I'm dying to go to Sydney. It's well a very known, long way. Yes. Well known Sydney harbour. That, yeah. I don't know which harbour. It just says the I harbor. don't know how important it is for, for, the, but maybe for the purposes of this one. Well, I think that's sort of part of the attraction, isn't it, really? If okay. you're going to a restaurant. So it's or something. a pretty view. It is. Um, so the restaurant is called Coco Loco, and the review is. Um, not favourable. Oh. <laughs> Let's read some of it, shall we? So the title of the review was Crash and Burn. <laughs> <laughs> the subtitle was When Dining on the View is the Only Recommendation. Ouch. <laughs> I, I'm getting the impression they didn't like the restaurant. <laughs> it just gets worse. <laughs> it's, um, so, if a restaurant serves good as well as bad food, do you give it the benefit of the doubt? I wouldn't do that with a three chefs hat restaurant which I'm assuming means there's some sort of star system that I'm not aware of. Or maybe it's like a little, like a little chef or something. Maybe it's yeah, or like, a, or like a class of restaurant, yeah. like there's a fast food and then there's the chain and then there's the, the, that kind of thing. Tune in next week to find out what a three chefs hat restaurant is in I Australia. Did, I did try and look and it just gave me lists and I was like, but I don't know, I don't want to know which restaurant. Right, anyone are. from Australia, if you could get in touch and tell us, because I'm intrigued yes. by this. Um, and then if you could validate my horrendous accent that would, that would be great um, I think it was alright wasn't it anyway. wasn't it wasn't you could tell so what I was trying to do it was offensive I think you could tell what yeah. I was trying to do it was obviously an attempt at an Australian accent attempt. it's better than mine attempt <laughs> attempt being the key word so uh, I wouldn't do that with a three chefs hat restaurant so why should I do it here especially when more than, more than half the dishes I've tried at Coco Roco are simply unpalatable Meow. Yep. Coco Roco is the swank new eatery at King Street Wharf. The opening was touted as Sydney's most glamorous restaurant. If glamour peaked at about 1985, then perhaps they're right. So we'll skip ahead a bit. Um, Do you think they were having a bad day, the reviewer? I don't think so. Okay. I just think that a lot of food criticism is like this, isn't Mm. it? It's trying to be sort of edgy, but also funny and... As, as accurate as they feel. I think a lot of people get really passionate That's about fine dining. That's true. People get dining. into their food, don't they? Yeah. So, it has set itself up as a flash restaurant with big end-of-town prices. Its business card even boasts that a new level of dining comes to Sydney's King Street Wharf. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so, at this point, he explains that it's actually two restaurants. There's Coco, where he ate, which is upstairs and is more expensive, and Rocco, which is on the waterfront. So my understanding is that they operated as one business, but there were just like two sections and presumably two menus. Okay. Or because why would you save the, serve the same food but for less money? He then starts talking about the food, first detailing the high prices, to which he said, it's a brave restaurateur who tries that without the goods to back it up. And then talking about the actual food he ate. Karis, as a lifelong vegetarian, you are just going to have to trust that these com- combinations do sound really quite strange. Okay. Um... So he tries this oyster dish, which comes with oysters that have each one is like a different flavour. One of which he describes as exquisite. And the one that they didn't do any fancy flavouring with, they just sort of cooked it and served it. He said that was really nice. Um, However, there is also one flavoured with saffron infused gin. Um, One with a seafood foam, which he describes as having a, quote, scary texture. And then regarding the limoncello one, he says... Limoncello oysters? Yes. He says, flavours jangle like a car crash. Oh. Um, no. He's gone over the edge there. He, he went for them. 
So his next dish is a carpaccio of beef. Um, carpaccio is like some thinly sliced raw beef. Right. I actually quite like carpaccio. Um, his reaction is pretty much just meh. So okay. he was like, mm, didn't love it. Um, there's also Queensland scallops with cauliflower, which he says nearly work, but are uninteresting. Again, seems you know fairly standard. The next bit was one of the most oft quoted in the other articles that I read. Why anyone would put apricots in a sherry-scented white sauce with a prime rib steak is beyond me. <laughs> a generous chock of meat comes perfectly rested, medium as ordered, but the halves of apricot are rubbery and tasteless, which is probably a good thing. I scrape the whole wretched garnish to one side. The meat has a good length of flavour and is a damned fine steak, even if it is $52. Oh. 52 Australian dollars in 2003 is something in the region of 75 Australian dollars now, which is £40. Ouch. He then says, I can't help but think that at that price, I could be dining at Rockpool. Which, Rockpool is a bar and grill, and I looked up the menu. I have never been more hungry in my entire life. It did look amazing. (laughs) And actually, um, the prices have not gone up. Of proportion. Obviously, I don't know what the prices were in 2003, but it's not going to cost $75 for a steak wasn't cheap, but it's not $75. On a side dish, three homemade mustards, milk, Guinness and lavender, prove that some things are better left alone. Lavender mustard? Yes. Um, the final menu orders as a roast chicken, which he describes as outstandingly dull. So he then says he goes back a few days later in the interests of impartiality. I don't know if this is standard practice or if it's just a specific one, but that's what he's done. He starts with a salad that he says is not great, but passable. He has a poached beef fillet, which he says shows like last time that they can really cook steak, but that the broth that comes with it is well below average. It is sticky sweet with port and overcooked potatoes floating in it. Do it no favours. Oxtail and sweetbread dumplings are a delight, however. So oxtail, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Um, sweetbread is actually awful from the throat and pancreas. So that, that to me, he says this is like, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> anyway. This isn't even done. It carries on fairly relentlessly and I couldn't really choose which bits to cut so I'm just going to read most of it. I've never had pork belly that could almost be described as dry until tonight. Uh, The meat is unevenly spiced with Moorish flavours and the lentils are poor. Texturally, it brings to mind the porcine equivalent of a parched wheat bix. Wheat bix? Yes, but they call it wheat bix. Oh. So, yeah, pork is not as much of that texture. For dessert, honeycomb cheesecake, $17, has little to recommend it with its soggy pastry base. Compared with the raspberry and Shiraz sorbet, however, it's heaven. A dismal pyramid of sorbet, $15, jangles the mouth like a gamelan concert. Poached berries underneath are okay, except for what I guessed might have been soggy blackberries. I had to look up what gamelan is. It is actually traditional music from Bali, which, although it might be a bit discordant to Western ears, I actually quite liked it, and I think that the comparison's a bit problematic. Okay. But it was 2003. I think people did, did do these things. He rounds off the review by saying it could be argued that cocoa is still settling in, but apricots in sherry-scented white sauce aren't meant to garnish a ribeye of beef. The menu isn't held back by minor glitches. It's flawed in concept and execution. In a city where harbourside dining has improved out of sight in recent years, Coco Roco is a bleak spot on the culinary landscape. So he wasn't a fan. I think he quite liked it. I mean, I don't. I don't really, I don't really see what the problem is. Yeah, I think. I don't think he liked it very much. It also, there, so there are also some other elements that seem to be sort of standard with all of the reviews, you know, things around the side. So like saying the service was sometimes good, sometimes bad. There's like a rating system where he gets points out of 20. And this restaurant scored in the bracket that was titled Stay Home. Right. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> but that seemed to be their standard one. That was not unique to this particular review. 
I don't really know how it works with food critics. So maybe the restaurateurs knew in advance that this review was going to be published. Maybe maybe they didn't. Um, but either way, it left the owners distraught. Which I think you can understand. I can see why they might felt upset. Yes. Uh, they were sisters Alexandra and Liliana Gacic, along with Liliana's husband, Branislav Chiric, to whom I sincerely apologise, as I'm sure that I butchered their names. <laughs> uh, couldn't figure out where they were from, so I had to guess and then try and get the pronunciations online. Um, Alexandra said that she couldn't walk for half an hour after reading the review. Again, kind of understandable. Um, I've seen slightly conflicting timelines. So it's either within six months of opening or within six months of publication of the review, the restaurant closed. They said business declined dramatically after the review and that forced the closure of the restaurant, which had cost $3 million to open. (gasps) Yeah. They then sought an apology from the paper so that they could rebuild their business, but this was declined. It's at this point that they decided to sue John Fairfax Publications, Property Limited, which owns the Sydney Morning Herald, for defamation. So you can't just sue because someone says they didn't like the food. But basically, here are the three points that they make that they say are defamatory, taken from the appeal documents. Uh, One, the appellants sell unpalatable food at Cocoroco. Two, the appellants provide some bad service at Cocoroco. And third, the third appellant is incompetent as a restaurant owner because he employed a chef at Coco Roco who makes poor quality food. I'm assuming that that third one is implied because it was not in the body of the review. Right. So the case attracted a lot of media attention for a few reasons, one of which is how long it went on. Now, have a guess taking to account, into account going through appeals and stuff. I think that's one year. Ten years. Ten years. So, based on my exceptionally scant knowledge of the Australian legal system, it seems to have gone through every single possible court. See, they're they're not happy about it either. (laughs) It had two jury trials, a trial before a judge, two appeals, two special leave applications to the High Court, and a full High Court hearing as well. Another reason it's in the media is the outcome, of course. So, the owners of Coco Roco actually won. Um, In much the same way as the Rebel Wilson case, they can't prove the allegations that were made in the article. Although, I think that you and I, as English graduates, would argue that a critic is basically just giving their opinion, whereas in the Wilson case, they were printing lies as facts. Like, he was mean. Yes. But I think a lot of reviewers are mean, and it was a mean review that affected their business, but, like, I don't don't think I agree with this judgment, Oh, I'm very intrigued by the fact that they won. Yes. Basically, just because I feel like there is a certain amount of opinion in a review like i don't think that a review is this film is good this film is bad because this particular person says so it is this particular person likes this film because xyz yes or they didn't like it because they felt no 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 whereas i hate no 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 no. i know when there's no 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 in a film it's just just stay home uh (laughs) yeah well that's why people will have a favorite critic isn't it because it's like this is a person whose whose opinions are quite close to mine so i i don't really so anyway, Fairfax have to pay them six hundred and twenty-three thousand five hundred and twenty-six Australian dollars. Ouch! That is about three hundred and forty-nine thousand pounds plus costs, <gasps> which I'm assuming after all this time are fairly For substantial. Ten years. Yeah, <laughs> fairly substantial, I wow. would guess. So the reason it's such a very specific amount of money is that Fairfax are being charged interest based on the amount of time that this case has taken. Part of the reason that they're being charged interest is that, with the exception of a year somewhere in the middle, the article was available online for the entire intervening 10 years, thus continuing the hurt to feelings and reputation. Uh. 
So there's been a decent amount of writing about the ramifications of this case. So essentially, you just can't write a bad review for fear of being sued. You can't say, I didn't like the food because this guy got sued. The original critic said that the final judgment was a sad day for Australian food journalism. He retired from being a critic in 2005 and he now breeds pigs and grows Brussels sprouts. <laughs> He's also a TV presenter, but the pig thing was much funnier. That's um, what we'll do if, um, if the podcast doesn't take off right, Danny. Yeah, or if we do it's get pigs sued. Pigs and Brussels sprouts. Or if we get sued for something that we say, then pigs and Brussels sprouts. Yeah. I'm not sold on necessarily having to be pigs and Brussels sprouts. I've always quite fancied keeping chickens, personally. <laughs> How about you? I'd love a chicken. Yeah, we could keep chicken. I mean, central London as well. There's so much room for for livestock. If you could figure out a way to have your own chickens, though, I bet you could sell that as hipster food, given all where you live. Yeah, <laughs> you could definitely do that. So that's our plan. That's our life plan. So after the judgment, they, there was another article that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, which was entitled "When Judges Judge Critics, the Results Can Taste a Bit Like Reflux." Now I couldn't find this article online anymore. I can't be sure, but I think the reason it was taken down was because it re- referenced another defamation case about a critic, but this time it was a theatre critic. I don't think I'm going to say this name right either, so I'm just I'm in a butchering names and accents yeah. mood today. Peter O'Shaughnessy's production of Othello, or Othello, published in The Mirror. I only know that this was included because the letter that O'Shaughnessy wrote to the paper correcting them is still on their website. And he was basically saying, that it's not I sued for defamation because they said this, this, this and this, and that's wrong. And, this, and I think that's why they've taken it down. So if that is why they've taken it down, that's just not a good run. They're trying to write an article that actually seemed like it might be quite fair. Um, in case you were wondering where I got it from, because um, the Sydney Morning Herald no longer have the original review online. Bits of it were included in a lot of the articles about the case, but somebody has uploaded a scan of the original paper. Uh, one. Okay. I don't know. I'm very, I'm very much on the fence about the actual judgment here. So in the actual judgment, did they conclude that damage had been caused yes. by the review unfairly? Basically, the, the problem was you cannot prove, you'd have to bring the food with you. <laughs> which to be perfectly honest I might have as a defence lawyer said you know what also, cook the food cook after it after you've eat eaten it. it bringing the food with you I mean probably isn't going to be very pleasant no but it's kind of like you can't prove it whereas like you know if you do a film review for example oops hit the table if you do a film review you can rewatch the film yeah you can rewatch the film you've got the film available you can say well this is the film and here's where I thought but this is and this do you then end up in a weird situation where judges are judging how objectively good they think a production of food or art is well they they do judge what is considered art and what isn't um like there was a case of um basically like somebody was arrested on suspicion of i think it was something like um pedophilia and they'd got a book that was had naked children in it but the book was considered art and it was I, basically it was i it, remember a couple of these cases yeah and because the book was available for sale they were like well he, he could buy it in like a standard shop it's not like he went to some dark reaches of wherever to get it it was just it's an art book it's art at what point is it not and that is a judgment that judges sometimes do have to make there's also another one that's going through the supreme court in it might not be the supreme court but it's court in the u.s about um cake maker a christian cake maker doesn't yes. want to make it is it art because if it's art the cakes that he makes for like weddings and stuff then it's protected by freedom of speech and he's allowed to refuse service but if it's like a food service industry then he's not allowed 
to deny them service. So judges do sometimes have to make a decision. Is this art or is it not? And I don't necessarily know that anyone is, is qualified to make that. I forget whether it's judges specifically or not. I don't think that we get to pick. I think that's definitely a, a broader question. Yeah, that it's a bit too broad for us. Yes. So shall we move on? Yes. I know that you're not the only one who has been on tenterhooks for this next law. I mean, this is going to change my life or not, pretty much. Potentially, I have... Yeah. don't know what to say to that, really. <laughs> so, within the city walls of York, it is legal to shoot a Scot with a bow and arrow as long as it is not a Sunday. I thought we were doing a different one. No. What happened to the pub one? Karis, that was last episode. That was last episode. Did I get the answer to that You one? did, you got it right. I don't remember this. Right, I've taken away that gold star. No, I do remember. I remember <laughs> I'm taking that That's gold star away. That's why I was like, this is, I mean, like, whether I can shoot a Scotsman or not, I'll be honest, isn't going to affect my life in quite the same I way. did wonder, I was so confused. I know it was like improv, you're supposed to yes and everything and kind of carry on, even the up afterwards, you're like, what? But I was like, I don't know what to say. Well, this is life-changing, so wait, <laughs> rewind, say this, this thing again. <laughs> Within the city walls of York, it is legal to shoot a Scot with a bow and arrow as long as it is not a Sunday, true or false. And I said false. You did. So, are you ready? Mm-hmm. It is actually false. So... Oh. Yeah, I think it's not particularly surprising, but you you mentioned it in the first episode, so I thought, let's find out. I'm almost 100% sure it's crap, <laughs> but let's find out. Um, so there are several versions of this, actually, like uh, including shooting a Welsh person with a longbow after midnight in Chester, so be very careful, Karis, um, on a Sunday in Cathedral Close in Hereford, blah, 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 there's more than one. If you need more than just my word that this is just not true. Uh, a Mr. Henry Shrimp submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to York Council wanting to know how many Scots had been shot under this law. They responded, and I quote, After an extensive search of our records, I can confirm that there are no records of any Scotsman being legally shot with a bow and arrow in the last ten years. There is, however, a vague recollection of, a, of an alleged occurrence several centuries ago, which involved a group of men from the Nottingham area dressed in green who were enjoying a stag night in York. <laughs> Furthermore, in a BBC article about this kind of thing, uh, the Law Commission were quoted as saying, it is illegal to shoot a Welsh or Scottish or any other person, regardless of the day, location or choice of weaponry. So basically any ancient law which may or may not exist in that regard is trumped by the fact that murder is illegal and the right to life is protected under the Human Rights Act. Well, that's a relief. Depending on how many Scotsmen you hate who are frequently in York of a week, day... I think it depends very much on your point of view on that one. You ready for the next one? Yes. In North Carolina, bingo games cannot last more than five hours. Oh. Oh. That's a good one. Again, this is going to be life-changing for me. <laughs> when, you, when you inevitably move to North Carolina, which okay. I know you have been bingo. desperate to My do. My bingo habit. Yeah. I'm going to say yes because it's some kind of gambling law. That's my guess. Okay. Find out next time. That's all from us, guys. Yeah, just be very careful about whose food you criticise, I suppose. Yeah. Food bloggers, beware.